0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 153, Friendly Advice. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. We have Frank Meyer and Peter Bultras. Hope I pronounced that and everything that correctly. As well as big thank yous to Dmitry Kolev, Christian Brzakova, Neleke Schurman, Stoyan Božinov, Dejan Dilov, Jay Lapidus, and Richard Dempsey. Yeah, again, hope I got all your names correctly. Big thank you to all of you. And a few of you I'm hoping to meet maybe sometime this summer when you're visiting Sofia. As always, everyone, it's easy to pledge even a buck an episode on Patreon, and it all helps a lot. And generally, just to all you patrons, thank you so, so much. You make doing this so much easier. Uh, This week, I ordered yet another round of extremely expensive academic books to use for the podcast, and it's great that I can just drop $60 or $80 on a single book without too much shame, because you all help support the show. So, thank you all. Now let's get into it. Last time, we saw Bulgarian-Russian relations rapidly deteriorate following the successful unification of Bulgaria, culminating in yet another, this time successful, attempt at removing Prince Alexander from his throne. After literally abdicating at gunpoint, he left the country. However, the officials who led that coup enjoyed very little support in the country, and Stefan Stambolov quickly rose to even greater prominence, leading a countercoup. Within days, the provisional government was toppled and a new government, headed by Stambolov, called on Prince Alexander to return. However, when he did, he incorrectly assumed that there was now an opening to mend relations with Russia and told Tsar Alexander III that he would only rule Bulgaria with the Tsar's blessing. Well, Alexander III quickly made it clear that Battenberg did not have his blessing in any way, shape, or form, and so the prince finally gave up, and advocated for good. Now, in the aftermath of unification and the abdication of Battenberg, it's time for Bulgaria's politicians to settle scores and find a new path forward geopolitically, as well as the more immediate problem just to find a new prince. Now, for Stambolov, the first order of business following the abdication was to confront his former friend and ally, Luben Kar- oh, sorry, Petko Karavelov, old habits, about his role in the whole ordeal. While the evidence points to Karovelov being a late and reluctant participant who only agreed to join the post-coup unified government in the interest of moving forward and avoiding bloodshed, Stambulov and his allies accused Karovelov of being in on the plot from the beginning and of generally just being a coward. In his own words, Stambolov said to Karovelov, either you are a traitor or else unfit to be trusted with the government. Our old friendship ceases from today. We may be forced to work together, but I can no longer consider you as one of my party, end quote. So, Stambolov not mincing any words there. And just like that, yet another fissure was breaking in the dominant liberal party. And so, remember before, that liberal party used to have Alexander Tsankov in it, it broke apart, now it's breaking apart again. So, a fairly common kind of political story. You have a super-dominant party that gradually breaks into factions. Now, in August 1886, immediately after the advocation of Battenberg, a new government was appointed under Vasil Radoslavov, a young liberal. Indeed, he had only just turned 32, which was ironically the same age as Stambolov, and, well, it's just interesting that at this point Bulgaria is run by some very, very young men. Uh, all, ironically enough, my age. Now, Radoslavov had studied in Heidelberg, Germany, and therefore was generally pro-German and Austro-Hungarian vis-a-vis Russia. Still, his appointment was only really meant to be temporary because the constitution now mandated a grand national assembly be elected to elect a new prince, and at that point, the country could probably hold new elections and kind of move forward, so he's kind of a placeholder. But before that grand national assembly can be assembled, the regular national assembly had to meet on the 1st of September, to affirm the regency, as well as authorizing the raising of new funds for the government to keep running via some treasury bonds and things. So, some small kind of details just to keep the lights on in the meantime. Now, while while Radoslavov was the head of government, Stambolov was the head of the regency, and basically the man in charge. A friend recounted that he seemed, quote, almost inclined to resign his honors, of serving as regent, together with the dangers of his position, and retired to his beloved Turnovo. end quote. So, while Stambolov was, you know, really the one in charge, basically running Bulgaria at just 32, he had no illusions about the difficulty of the task in front of him. Bulgaria was deeply divided and friendless on the European stage. I mean, some countries were more friendly towards Bulgaria than others, but Bulgaria had no staunch allies. Stambolov needed to win back the trust of the army, repair relations with Russia, and find a new prince, and generally just get the whole country back on track towards economic growth following unification. Because remember, unification was very expensive, and so the country really needs to move forward economically. But yeah, all that is to say, Stambolov does not have an enviable task. It is a very difficult set of tasks in front of him. Now, when Stambulov arrived back in Sofia, his first mission was to clarify Russia's policies towards Bulgaria at this particular political moment. Now, at the Russian consulate, Stambulov asked whether the Tsar would honor his previous promise to recognize unification now that Prince Alexander was gone. He also asked for new candidates that Russia could support for the, the role for the throne. However, Stambulov was deeply disappointed with the answers he received. The agents of the consulate denied any knowledge of any agreement to recognize unification in Bulgaria and expressed the opinion opinion that Bulgaria was basically not ready for another prince. So, well, you could forgive Stamblov for his utter exasperation with Russia. I mean, Russia basically blamed every single problem in its relationship with Bulgaria on Alexander Bottenberg, and said that once Bottenberg was gone, everything would be fine. So now bottenberg has gone and Stambolov is asking, so is everything fine? And Russia's saying, no, no, it's not. So there you go. Now, Stambolov understandably responded by demanding what on earth Tsar Alexander III wants from Bulgaria. He said he wanted them to get rid of the prince and they did that, but now he's still refusing to accept unification and basically saying that they shouldn't go ahead and obtain a new prince. So what what's the answer? Well, the answer Stumbleoff received at this moment was vague, but the true answer was on its way, and that was Kalbars. Now, you may remember Kalbars as being that Russian diplomat and minister of war who bungled things thoroughly in Bulgaria and supported uh, Alexander Botenberg's coup back in the day. But this is not the same guy; this is his brother, his older brother. So. This older Kalbar soon arrived in Sofia with the mission of assisting Bulgaria in finding a new prince, as well as generally getting Russo-Bulgarian affairs back on track. So, seems like a good sign, right? That's that's what the Bulgarians want. But you'll be shocked to discover that Kalbars immediately began to anger and frustrate Stambolov and the Regency with his overbearing approach. I know came as a a real shock to all of us. But basically, far from advising the Bulgarian government on how to proceed, he immediately set about telling everyone how things were going to go. In fact, his first order of business was to inform the regency that the regency itself was unconstitutional. Also, that the state of siege, which was declared during the coup, should be ended, and that the Grand National Assembly should not meet to choose a prince because it had been called by the regency, and the regency was illegal, so they would be illegal too. He also insisted that all people imprisoned for their actions during the coup should be released. So, in theory, Kalbar's right, he's arriving to mend relations with uh, Bulgaria, but he just shows up and immediately decides that he's in charge and he's going to tell everyone what to do and they should just forget about what happened in the Regency and just sort of follow Russia's lead. So, in other words, Russia at this moment was so desperate to delay the convening of the Grand National Assembly because Russia felt that it was in a weak position and it didn't want an, a decision as important as choosing a new prince to happen at a moment where it was weak. Remember, Russia's weak at this moment because, well, the the coup that Russia supported was just overthrown, right, uh, by this counter coup. And so, yeah, you can you can imagine, right, if, uh, you know, maybe you and your partner are in the middle of a fight and you have to make a huge life decision, you know, buying a house or a car or something. You don't really want to make a super important decision in the middle of a fight so that's kind of Russia's position at this moment. So that's why they're opposing anything moving ahead with the choosing of a new prince. Now they even let it be known that the Tsar was willing to accept the title Grand Duke of Bulgaria to, in effect, transform the country into a puppet state. Which, you know, very generous of them. Uh, so, so they're saying no, 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 don't choose a new prince. But also, if you wanted to basically make the Tsar your sovereign, that would be cool. So. Kalbaris is basically acting as if Bulgaria is already a Russian puppet, running around making demands. But Stambolov and the Regency? They don't see things the same way. True, one of their main goals was also to restore good relations with Russia, but frankly, they felt that there was no way they could comply with Russia's demands. So, elections were scheduled, despite Russian opposition, for October the 10th, to elect members of that Grand National Assembly, which would elect a new prince. However, despite getting nowhere with the regency, Kalbars was still determined to see Russia's desired policies carried out. So, he basically bypassed the regency and attempted to go straight to the people. Now, this is a a somewhat interesting example of how politics is evolving in the late 19th century, right? That uh, you can basically take politics right to the people, and if you want, try to kind of circumvent the elites. So, Kalbars has a 1,000 copies uh, of basically a list of the demands that he just made to the Regency, printed and posted around Sofia. So, in effect, he's kind of openly threatening the Bulgarian government by letting everyone know what his demands were. And, well, at this moment, it seemed clear that Russia was open to conducting yet another coup in Bulgaria, this time against Stambolov in the Regency. Well, yeah, no surprise, Russia's been willing to, you know, use coups in Bulgaria in the past, so why not again? And in response, the Regency felt that they had to make some kind of concessions because, you know, they couldn't accept all of uh, Russia's demands, but at the very least, they did not want another coup. So they made one major concession. They ended the state of siege. So you think of this as something like martial law or something roughly equivalent. But the Regents still held firm that elections would take place and a new Prince of Bulgaria would be selected as soon as possible. Russia was more than welcome to suggest a candidate, but they still refused to do so. They're kind of playing hardball, right? we don't want a prince chosen right now and we're not going to compromise by at least trying to influence that, that uh, whole thing, we're just going to hold firm. Ultimately, though, the immediate issue was resolved when the National Assembly confirmed the legality of the regency and Kalbars basically had to accept it as well. It just They ran out of options, absent a coup. But the agitation ahead of those elections still continued. And Kalbars began a kind of grand tour of Bulgaria to advocate for pro-Russian and anti-Regency candidates to be elected to the Grand National Assembly. And, you know, prepare to be shocked, it did not go well. On the last Sunday before the election, a huge crowd assembled in Sofia. And a Russian agent among them shouted, "Long live the Tsar of Russia! Down with Bulgaria!" Now, unsurprisingly, uh, this led to him and his entourage being beaten up by the crowd. I mean, it's it's not really a great idea to jump in front of, jump inside of a huge crowd like that and basically denounce the country that you're in. Um, so yeah, they, they, they got beaten up by the crowd until the police rescued them. And Kalbars then asked if he could give a speech. And in that speech, he claimed that Russia only had Bulgaria's very best interests at heart. And the crowd were not super receptive to this message. Uh, But Kalbars continued listing Russian demands. And each time, the crowd angrily yelled its opposition to him. And he just kept listing demands. I'm I'm really getting the impression that the, the Kalbars family, they did not know how to read a room. So, yeah, as a result, Kalbars becomes increasingly angry and the crowd begins to chant down with Russia and long live the Constitution. And ultimately, Kalbars basically had to be escorted away by police. Again, not surprising. You get a crowd angry at you, you. You probably need some police protection. And well, a British diplomat cabled back to London about the whole event, stating, quote, Kalbars's speech in Sofia may be taken as a proof of his personal courage and his disregard for diplomatic usage it is, I presume, the first time that the representative of a foreign power has harangued a popular meeting in a sense hostile to the government to which he was accredited. And the question might arise whether such conduct would be covered by the diplomatic immunities to which foreign representatives are entitled. End quote. So basically he's saying that, like, what Kalbars is doing is so, so far removed from what a normal diplomat would normally do That it's both bizarre because it doesn't seem to in any way help his aims. Like this, it, it doesn't, you know, it's hard to see how on earth this speech was going to help his mission and improve relations with Russia. But at the same time, he's questioning that if a diplomat is acting in such a bizarre way and outside of kind of typical diplomatic behavior, are they even covered by diplomatic immunity? So, I mean, that's a whole separate debate, but... It gives you a sense of how other European diplomats view this whole thing. Like, even they find this entire scene to just be profoundly bizarre. So, from the Russian and indeed most outsiders' perspective, Kalbars was only worsening the Russian position in Bulgaria by continuing the overbearing and paternalistic behavior that openly antagonized the public and the broadly popular regency. Yet, Kalbars himself felt that the reaction he received was not representative, labeling the crowd in Sofia as, and apologize for the term, but this is what he said, quote, nihilists and gypsies, end quote. So basically, yeah, the crowd does not respond to him well, and he's like, oh, it's because they're just a bunch of losers, like, of course they didn't like me. Uh, Yeah, he's a bit in his his head here. You know, so Kalbars still firmly believed that the majority of Bulgarians were pro-Russian, Despite all the actions Russia had taken since 1878, and despite the public response he gets so often, he still believes that surely most Bulgarians are with me. and so he confidently embarks on his tour to, you know, argue openly for anti-regency candidates in the election, anyways. Now, as he goes about this, the Regency is understandably concerned for his safety because, you know, the guy who likes running around and openly antagonizing violent crowds, he's going to get hurt eventually. And the Regency didn't want to see him get hurt, let alone killed by a crowd, because that would harm Russian relations very, very, very deeply. And even though this guy's pissing them off, they still really want to improve that relationship. So they dispatch Major Racho Petrov to oversee his security as he tours the country. So yeah, it's, it's a bit ironic that the Regency has to kind of provide security for the guy who's openly campaigning against them. But, you know, good on them for doing it. Interesting enough, it is possible that Petrov, the the guy in charge of security, was also using his position to secretly organize counter-demonstrations along the route, although we're not completely certain of this. But in any case, around this time, the Regency also does uh, a not-so-subtle announcement that it is willing to expel any foreigners who meddle in Bulgarian affairs. So, you know, hint, hint, wink, wink, to Mr. Kolbars. Now, all these events culminated in the October elections for the Grand National Assembly. As usual, they were marred by violence on both sides, and the Regency in particular used its position of power to help sway the election its way, in what was basically quickly becoming the standard in Bulgarian elections. Stambolov threw many of his opponents in jail and had loyal men guarding Sofia polling places. There was... One major pro-Russian demonstration in Dubnica, where many were arrested and local peasants took control of roads leading into the city, and Stambolf had to call in a unit of cavalry from Samokov to reopen the roads. There were also shots fired at a group of pro-Russian peasants in Sofia, which then received aid at the Russian consulate. So, yeah, definitely not a peaceful election, but overall while all bulgarian elections up to this point have seen violence and governments pressing their fingers on the scales stambolov was really ramping things up to a new level professor tatiana konstantinova a specialist on bulgarian elections during this period wrote quote, "the stambolov period gave rise to a very dangerous trend in bulgarian politics" The violence and arbitrary arrests executed by the police and the interference of administrative staff representatives in the pre-election campaign led to a distortion of the election returns. Often, the electorate was forced to vote, which contradicted that part of the electoral election law, which guaranteed non-obligatory participation. The bloody skirmishes, arrests of candidates for deputies on election day, falsified counting of the paper, uh, paper ballots, and had one goal, "...only approved candidates, governmental partisans, were to be elected, thus ensuring obedience and loyalty to the government and a controlled parliament." End quote. So, yeah, we're, we're in this tricky situation where, you know, by all accounts, as best, you know, best we can tell based on the information we have, the Regency was still popular, but that was not stopping it from heavily trying to influence the elections and really ramping up the extent to which that is happening. So... While Russia's attempt to turn Bulgaria into a puppet state had definitely received a major blow by this point, frankly, so too had Bulgarian democracy. However, the results were still unambiguous. Uh, And again, we have no idea what the results would have been without that government interference, but it was still a clear win for the Regency and the Russophobes. Together, they won about 90% of the seats. Tsankov's party, for example, got six seats, and a new party formed by Karavelov after his break with Stambolov got apparently only 27 votes, which, wow, 27, uh, cementing his very, very abrupt fall from power. He actually was still in the government at this point, and shortly afterwards he finally left. So the combination of the unpopularity of the coup against the former prince and the campaigning of Kalbars meant that pro-Russian candidates lost decisively. So it now seemed that Bulgaria would choose a new prince, basically without any Russian input. Indeed, Russian diplomacy had well and truly shot itself in the foot once again. In the span of a month, they had turned a situation where the Bulgarian government was actively working to mend relations and asking St. Petersburg for input on its preferred candidates for the throne, to one in which no one felt the need to get Russian approval of absolutely anything. So, Russia's, you know, all-or-nothing escalation tactics left it with nothing. In response to these elections, Kalbars declared that the election and the resulting Grand National Assembly were both illegal and had two Russian warships moved to Varna. Basically, more intimidation. A plan was put together to potentially land Russian troops and then, working with loyal Bulgarian soldiers, quickly take over the country. Now, the Regency government took this very serious, and basically made another concession, releasing some of the coup conspirators in order to avoid invasion. So, in other words, Kalbars is somehow slowly managing to win some of the concessions he asked for, basically by threatening invasion and another coup. The leaders of the coup plot were still tried in Bulgarian courts and found guilty in absentia as they had already fled to Russia, where they continued to plot to overthrow the Bulgarian government and obtained financing and military support from the Tsar. So, yeah, Bulgaria is unable to get justice for those who plotted the coup, and they're back in Russia, but still, you know, Kalbaris is slowly obtaining some concessions. However, Russia still refuses to recognize the Grand National Assembly as being legal. Rumors of invasion are swirling, and none of the great powers permitted their envoys to even attend the opening of the Grand National Assembly in Ternovol. Even the Ottoman troops had massed on the Bulgarian border, awaiting orders to potentially invade from an indecisive Ottoman government. However, no invasion would come. Russia knew that it would still need the approval of the great powers, and although it had a chance to expand its influence, the potential gains of an out-and-out takeover of Bulgaria still just did not outweigh the costs. Even in the week and a half between the election and the first sitting of the Grand National Assembly, events were moving very quickly, though. So, you know, there was no Russian or Ottoman invasion happening, but, well, there's still a lot of opposition and a lot of unrest. For example, police crushed a prospective revolt in Khaskovo. Officers in Schumann declared that they opposed the return of Battenberg, which was still a possibility. The the Grand National Assembly still could have asked him to come back yet again. And Stambolov was forced to mobilize loyal troops to prevent the prospect of a pro-Russian revolt amongst some Bulgarian military units. Stambolov and many others believe that the only solution to all this chaos right now was to find a prince as soon as possible. Basically, you know, there's this—you know—Bulgaria is a simmering pot, and there's little revolts and prospective revolts and coup plotting going on everywhere. And again, Stambol feels that the most effective way to just stop all of that is to find a new prince who can act as an agent of stability. Now, in the midst of all of this, the Grand National Assembly finally convened in Tourneval on October the 19th. Stambolov opened the assembly with a speech in which he asked for all sides to cooperate to preserve peace and liberty. In this vein, he also cabled Tsar Alexander, pledging Bulgarian devotion and expressing hope for the return of good relations, and, again, asking for guidance on Russian preferences for a new Bulgarian prince. No surprise, the response was another insistence that the assembly and the elections which created it were illegal and Russia wouldn't recognize them or any prince elected by them. So, back to square one. Only three days after the assembly began its work, one of the conspirators who orchestrated the coup a few months previously was freed on the insistence of Russia and subsequently staged an uprising in Burgas. He had assumed this would trigger a general uprising, but he was very much mistaken, and the uprising was quickly put down. He was sentenced to death, and then released to Russia on their insistence. So, more of the same. But by now, the antics of Kalbars in Bulgaria were becoming something of a scandal in Europe. I mean, remember what that British diplomat had to say about Kalbars and his behavior? Like, it was basically beyond what a diplomat should be allowed to do. Well, by now... Many newspapers around the continent were breathlessly reporting on the repeated and brazen Russian attempts to take over the country and openly asking how the other great powers could allow this to continue. All of this culminated in the British Prime Minister giving a strong speech condemning Russia's actions. The Tsar was furious about this and wanted to invade India in response, but his foreign minister talked him down. Quick step out of it, but uh, it's, it's very amusing to me just how Incredibly familiar, all this sounds, to what's happening in the world at this moment in 2022, but that's neither here nor there. Now, it was all too much. Russia's reputation in Europe was suffering, and it was clear that while Kalbars had won concessions on ending the state of siege and getting some coup participants released, his third demand, the one to end the Grand National Assembly, was just not going to happen. Thus, it was decided that basically Kalbars couldn't accomplish anything more by staying in Bulgaria, and in November he finally left the country. This effectively broke diplomatic relations between Bulgaria and Russia, kicking off an even more intense kind of Cold War between the two. Now, I'll quote Rekun's summary of this situation. He wrote, Kalbars' mission to Bulgaria illustrated one last time the problems that had plagued Russian foreign policy in Bulgaria since the days of Paransov and Davidov. Rather than allow Girz and Kalbars to leverage the latter's popularity in Bulgaria and try to salvage the situation somehow, Tsar Alexander III took personal control of Russian foreign policy. He sidelined the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and commanded Kalbars to act in an aggressive, offensive, pan-slav-tinged fashion with the Bulgarian government. The result was that Bulgarian regents and populace, already skeptical and suspicious of Russian intentions after considerable prior experience, rejected the last Russian effort to dictate affairs, End quote. So, in other words, while, I mean, there's probably a little bit of blame to go for the actual Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for the most part, the situation in terms of Russian and Bulgarian foreign policy being so bad is really a result of the Tsar himself taking personal control and insisting that things be done the way he wants, i.e. in a very brazen, aggressive, and overbearing manner. So, as a result of all this, Russian and Bulgarian relations are at a new low. But, at least Bulgaria no longer had to contend with the active threat of invasion and the presence of Russian agents agitating on its territory, so that's nice. But with all that, the process of choosing a new prince for Bulgaria could begin. Now, one top candidate was Prince Valdemar of Denmark. He was Tsar Alexander's brother-in-law, in addition to being related to the British royals through his sister's marriage, so he seemed like a good candidate, and it was hoped that Valdemar's election could help mend Russian relations. However, the Tsar would not budge on his refusal to recognize anything the Grand National Assembly did and in any case, Waldemar himself declined the offer. So that was that. After losing their first candidate, the assembly sent representatives throughout Europe to find someone suitable. Though there were a few known candidates at this point. There was Bernard of Saxe-Weimar, Alexander of Oldenburg, and Alexander Bogoridi, who you'll remember he and his father had been very important Ottoman-Bulgarian officials for some decades. Some also floated the idea of Count Ignatieff, the architect of the San Stefano Treaty, or a Russian-Caucasian noble, but both were technically prohibited by the Treaty of Berlin, and so they couldn't really be considered serious candidates. Now, other possibilities were also considered. An offer was extended to King Carol of Romania to become a dual monarch of both countries, but he also declined. No doubt he was aware that ruling one Balkan state was hard enough, and trying to manage a union of two would be a truly Herculean task. Stambolov even talked with the Ottomans about a personal union between Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire in which the Sultan would be Bulgaria's sovereign while being represented by a member of his family to allow for more local autonomy. But this, too, was declined. I imagine because the great powers would not have accepted that, basically, power expansion on the part of the Ottomans. Now, Perry writes how, quote, This proposal revealed that Stambolov was nothing if not a pragmatist. Less than a decade after he himself had fought to expel the Ottomans from his homeland, he was now inviting them, titularly, to take over full control, though Macedonia and Thrace were also slipped into the package as Bulgaria. Evidently, the chief regent felt that if Bulgaria were again under full Ottoman protection, the great powers, most notably Russia, would no longer press so strongly for control. Whether or not this was sound reasoning is another matter. End quote. So, you know, as we continue to follow Stambolov, off and he becomes more powerful. It's important to keep this in mind about him. He is a pragmatist. You know, he's willing to do just about anything to get the end result that he wants. He's not a very sentimental guy and the fact that he's willing to basically put the Ottoman Sultan in control of Bulgaria again really shows that. Although, again, I think it's worth noting that, you know, basically the 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 condition for that was also that Bulgaria becomes almost San Stefano Bulgaria de facto. So, you yeah, know, he was getting something pretty substantial out of that potential deal. But in any case, that's where I'm going to finish this episode. Russia has cut diplomatic ties with Bulgaria, and Bulgarian representatives are now traveling throughout Europe in search of a suitable prince. The past few months have been extremely chaotic, with many attempted revolts and much intrigue. But there remains a hope that a new prince can still be Bulgaria's salvation and bring some stability. Barring that, the increasing power of the young Stefan Stambolov seems to be the only force capable of bringing stability, if a very repressive stability, to the young country. So next time, we'll see Bulgaria choose a new prince as the country enters a new era of its history. So don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. You can check out the early Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com and more info for this episode in the episode description. And thank you all for listening.